the biggest challenge was being a better communicator. No one teaches you as a child, and there are no courses in college where like, how do you work with people? How do you listen? How do you become a better listener? I heard this somewhere, and I can't remember where I heard it from. It's like, in this moment, in this conversation, do you want to be heard, hugged, or helped? Because when someone's talking to you, where they're coming from, you have to kind of understand what is it that they're trying to get, and how are you there to help them so that your relationship can evolve and get stronger. And so when you have employees and everyone's got a different personality, everyone's got a different agenda, how can you be a really good listener? Welcome to The Wild Show with your hosts, Will Chang, Lee Chang, and Andrew Su. Hi, welcome to the, another episode of The Wild Show. Today's guest is Irene Wong. Irene is an award-winning showrunner, producer, and director with 20 plus years of experience in food, travel, and lifestyle media. She's one of the key storytellers of the food industry, bridging the gap between chefs and foodies. Irene created Everyday Italian, My Country, My Kitchen, and Melting Pot at Food Network before founding her own production company, I.W. Wong Productions. Since then, Irene has traveled the world creating series like Manfire Food, Food Paradise, and Unique Eats. Welcome, Irene. Hi! (laughs) Intros and credentials aside, your Instagram is ridiculous. The food photos, your storytelling, the food photos, and the chefs. And the first thing I wanted to ask about is actually your photo series, Cooking with Francis Malman. How did you get to visit and cook with him and how was it? Okay, I'm sure I'm not the only one who has seen the episode of Chef's Table when Mr. Francis Malman was basically on this gorgeous island, floating on a boat and doing his interview on the water and just talking about fire and food and life. And you're just immediately drawn in. Like, who is this guy? And how do I get to meet him? And like most people, I follow him and watch what he's cooking, where he's traveling, what he's doing. And maybe a couple of years ago, I wanted to find out if Francis Mallman would cater my birthday party. (laughs) I know. Amazing. I mean, look, when you're home, you've got a laptop and Google. It's very easy to type Francis Mallman cater private events just to see what the computer is going to tell you. And during my search, I found out that he participates with a travel company that he opens up his island. He's got this private island in the middle of Patagonia. And maybe four times a year, he allows a very small group of maybe 10 people to come and basically live, eat, and breathe with Francis Mallman. And I was like, wait, I can actually go to his island? And so I reached out to the travel company. I found out the dates that was happening in 2022. And I was like, I'm going to do it. Like, if I can't get Francis to come to my birthday party, I will go to his island and tell myself that it's a birthday party for me, even though there'll be nine other strangers with me. So that's how I discovered how I could get from New York City down to Patagonia. And then before I knew it, the date was here and... It took two days to travel. I spent a few days in Buenos Aires on my own and then continued to fly, take a car or take a boat in order to get to his island. And then I spent one full week with him and then trucked back home. So that's how I got to France. Small. Amazing. Do you have a favorite story or favorite dish while you were cooking with him for that entire week? Gosh, it's weird because you don't really know what to expect, right? 
And the moment we got there and the boat pulled up, he's there with his dogs, a few of his staff. It's a very small group of people who live on the island also. And he says, come, it's cold outside. You've been traveling all day. You walk into his house, you go into his kitchen, and you smell food. Right away, you're greeted with food. And you're like, oh boy, what is he making? And he's like, it would be nice to start off with some uh, cake and then some champagne. Okay, sure. (laughs) Why not? And it's not just any cake. I was kind of like the first one who walked in. And so I see this beautiful, thick cheesecake, but it's savory. It's not sweet. It's not tea time. It's we're going to give you some molten, melted cheese with, I don't know what else was it. There was a crust. It was a cheesecake, but it was savory and hot. And he cuts into it. And I'm recording a video and I can hear, like I can hear myself salivating. I can hear my oohs and ahs, which normally as a producer, I know how to be quiet and I never let my audio interfere, but I couldn't help myself. And I just take this plate and then I go outside because I'm going to get a photo of in the day. I was like, no, no, you need to eat a while time. Like, I know, I know, I'll get to it. I promise. And I'm thinking, oh, he's going to learn very quickly that the camera eats first in my life. And so we ate it. We had champagne. And that was the most memorable because it was unexpected. And I think most meals that make an impression on us are things that we don't expect. And so out of all the fires we built and all the meats we had, all the fish we caught and and then cooked over a fire, that cake was probably the most memorable dish that I had. Wow, that is spellbinding. I love that. (laughs) Thank you. So then on that note, because now we have to know, who is your next dream birthday caterer so we can be ready to find out that story in the future? Well, I'm going to need to like build the funds back up in order to pay for this extravagant meal. I don't know. I've been very fortunate in my career that I've met a lot of amazing, fascinating people. And I'm not just talking about very high-end Michelin star chefs. I'm talking about home cooks. It's a job that has enabled me to be invited into people's homes. And sometimes that home can be a very small kitchen, or it could be a luxurious, fancy, four-star restaurant. And so I've been fortunate to meet many, many people And no matter where you're from, what kind of food you specialize in, at the end of the day, it's really about saying, hi, here, please sit down and try this. And food has a way of just getting people to open up, kind of be present in the moment because you have to take in those aromas, you take in those flavors, and then you remember that someone actually made this for me. They got the ingredients, whether they did it or they had a team created, they're feeding you. And it's something that we've been doing since we were born. We've been fed and nourished. It starts with our family. And then it expands over our lifetime with friends and strangers. And I don't know if there's anyone who's like, oh, it would be a dream. I could be with that person. I feel that everyone who I get to dine with is a dream because they're creating a memory that either reminds me of some other moment that's similar, or it's creating a brand new memory that I could never recreate, like when I met Francis on his island. Don't really think I'll be traveling to another private island with a very renowned chef eating a sliced cheesecake. (laughs) Totally. So not something to chase because there's a beautiful nugget of that same feeling in any meal, but it'll kind of come through serendipity. I love that. So On those memories. So what are your first memories? Where did you grow up? How did you get so into it? Okay, so I only found this out recently, like as of maybe a year or two ago, when I was born in Brooklyn, New York, 
And when I was born, my parents were both working in Wall Street. So they were working in Manhattan and they had an apartment in Chinatown in Manhattan. But back then, we're talking about the early 70s, you know, they didn't have nannies, babysitters, you know, they were making ends meet. And so they would drop me off at my grandmother and grandfather's house in Brooklyn. So my mom would drop me off every day, Monday morning, leave me there. And then my grandparents would kind of raise me. She'd come take a subway back, feed me dinner, give me a bath, and then she'd head back into the city and go to work the next day. So I spent the first year of my life being raised by my grandparents. Now, What's interesting about my grandparents is that it wasn't just an ordinary house in Brooklyn. They actually lived in an apartment above their own restaurant. They had a Chinese-American takeout restaurant on Avenue U, Greenstead, Brooklyn. We were probably one of two Chinese families that I saw in the neighborhood. And when you have a restaurant, well, there's no need to have a kitchen in your apartment. So even though there was a kitchen, they did all the cooking downstairs. So when they opened the restaurant at 11 a.m. and closed it at 9 p.m., I was in the back room, probably in a crib, where they would just kind of like watch over me, but they'd still have a restaurant. So I think when you kind of grow up and you hear the walks or the exhaust fan, you hear the chopping that's happening on the butcher block, and you smell all the different aromas that's coming out of this Chinese kitchen, that's going to make some kind of impression on you. And that, to me, probably comforted me. And perhaps that's what continues to make me feel embraced, is when I smell food, when I taste food, when I'm surrounded by people who want to kind of put me into that world. So that was where the love for food, I think, began without really knowing it. And then as I got older, uh, my parents eventually moved into a house that was a few blocks away. So the grandparents' kitchen slash house became a place where I would go every day after school. It's where I spent every single summer because my parents were still full-time working parents. And so I pretty much was raised by my grandparents in that kitchen. And on the days that that kitchen was closed, grandpa closed it on Mondays so he could go fishing during the day. We would have dinner with them. So the metal gates would come down in front of the uh, restaurant so no one could look inside. We'd turn on just a few lights, not all of the house lights, because, you know, we don't want to waste electricity. And we would use the giant walks to make dinner, have some rice. And the eight of us, my parents, my brother, me, my grandparents, my aunt and my uncle, we all sat down at the big, big table and we had dinner every Monday night together. And sometimes we would have dinner together on Saturday night. And that continued until I went to college and I went to NYU. And so even though I was going to NYU, I wasn't living in the dorm. I was still living in, in my parents' house, but I'd still go there. Oh, and it wasn't until I moved into the city after graduation that I then separated myself from that. And then eventually they retired and closed the restaurant down. But my aunt still lives in that building. They still own it. My grandparents have passed away. But when I visit, they allow me to go to the backyard. They have this space downstairs that they refuse to rent it out. So it's just an empty retail space with just a storage where they keep all their things. But you walk through and you're like, oh my God, I used to be here all the time as a kid. So that was my upbringing was being raised in a restaurant. Wow. That makes a lot of sense for where your love came from. But one personal question. So who did folks think was the best chef or did you have a favorite dish? If you don't want to answer the best chef question. Oh, in my family? Yeah. Well, I mean... So grandpa would always make these like Chinese American dishes for the restaurant. So, you know, he had the typical like egg roll, lo mein, fried rice. When it came time to cooking for us in the back kitchen, he did things that were a little bit more simple and not so Americanized. And I think the thing that sticks out the most in my brain is he would take shrimp, 
he would not even go through the effort of peeling it. He's like, you guys can do it at the table. But he would cut along the back, remove the vein, and then he would just drop it in boiling water just to quickly cook it, take it out. And he would then pour in hot, hot oil, vegetable oil. And what would happen is he would chop up ginger, scallions, garlic, put that on top of the shrimp, and then pour the hot oil on top of it so it's fizzled and slightly crisped up. And then all of a sudden, the shells had this like gloss to it. And he didn't even add soy sauce. He was just like, that's all it is. But we would have that almost at least once a week. He'd buy a big five pound box of frozen shrimp from Chinatown. And that was the go-to. And he'd use that sauce for that fish that he caught. And then sometimes we'd have a poached chicken. He'd put it on that. But I think, I don't know if that was like, oh, the most memorable dish. Like he would do special things. But the thing that I continue to make my own kitchen is that. So I think something that has less than five ingredients that you still continue to do many, many decades later, I think that qualifies as a memorable dish. Beautiful. So how did you then transition from this very New York restaurant upbringing, moving into the city? But how did you get into food producing? When you're going to school, the dream isn't oh, I want to work in true television. I mean, I was in college between 1990 and 1994. And Food Network was created in 93, I want to say. And that's like very, very beginning stages of Food Network. But you're not going to school. At least I wasn't going to school to do that. But I did go to film school. I went to the School of the Arts. And my goal was to do broadcast journalism. So I was doing a double major with journalism. And I was also studying in the film program. So I would take film classes, TV classes, writing classes, producing, and you also shoot things, you edit things, you work with other students and you create these projects together. And that was the beginning of learning how to work with the team. How do you communicate what your shot list is? How do you do interviews and get locations to give you the okay to shoot there? How do you tell a story and how do you tell it visually? You know, you have to have a script or an idea of the structure is of what you're trying to achieve, but you also have to have an open mind of what's going to happen. Things that you could never anticipate, things that you could never script. And when you bring it into the edit room, how do you craft the story with what your original vision was with what actually happened? And what I studied wasn't scripted films. It wasn't like, okay, we have a movie. Here's the script. Here's the dialogue. Here are the actors. And now we're going to shoot it as we mapped it out. What I was doing was more documentary. It was more news stories. And so you go on idea with an agenda, but you're then letting these subjects tell you what the story is. And you're kind of merging all of those sound bites and creating voiceover for it. So I studied storytelling. And my goal when I graduated was, okay, if I could work for NBC News, ABC News. If I could do broadcast segments, then that's the career I'm going to take. And so when I graduated, my first job was at Good Morning America as a researcher. And one of the great things about the Chief School of the Arts is they had an extensive internship program. So during my junior and senior years, I did an internship at Saturday Night Live. I did an internship with Columbia TriStar and also Good Morning America. And so you get to spend a few months for college credit to kind of be on the inside and work with these industry professionals and get a sneak peek of what it's like in all these different facets of the entertainment industry. And when I graduated, I had reached out to my boss at Good Morning America. And she said, well, there's actually an opening in the research department, which is kind of entry level. And so that's what happened. Like maybe a week or two after graduation, I started at Good Morning America in the research department. And it was our job to 
get all the research for the writers and the writers were responsible for putting together a script for the hosts at the time. So it was Joan Lenzen and Charles Gibson. And that's what I did. I would do research, learn about the news, learn about science. We would do field pieces, work for the fields and yeah, field unit. And so you start learning how to do sound bites and interviews. And I was lucky they let me travel outside of New York, but food was never in the picture. It was all about being a journalist. But Good Morning America also had guest chefs come on promoting their cookbooks. And there was one lady who was in charge of booking all the chefs and doing the demos with them. I was so jealous. I was like, oh, I want her job. I want to be able to meet these chefs. I want cookbooks sent to me that I could then read. And so it was a job that I always fantasized about. But it's like, how do you make that happen? And one day by the elevators, I bumped into a producer named Bob Tushman. And he it was a freelancer at the time. So he'd come in and so I'd work with him. And he said, oh, I just started working at Food Network. It's a really interesting place. Like they're doing some different stuff. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. He's like, yeah. And we bumped into each other at some lunch. And he's like, there's a new show called Cooking Light Primetime with Sarah Moulton. We're looking for a field producer. Do you want to come join? I was like, oh, I don't know. I actually had accepted a job to work at Martha Stewart's TV show when it was based in Westport. I was like, no, I'm actually going to leave Good Morning America. I'm going to work for Martha. And yeah, that, that's where I'm going. And four weeks after I worked for Martha, I then called Bob and I was like, okay, I'm ready to come to Food Network. <laughs> and so I started working at Food Network in 1999. And that pretty much changed my life. It was the beginning of what would be the next 25 years where you travel you go to restaurants, you meet chefs, you learn how to style food, you learn how to read recipes and transform them into storyboards. You start to create a look, a style guide of what I like to do with food. You learn how to kind of put a show together. It started as five-minute segments to half-hour shows, one-hour shows. So the next six years of Food Network were just the best times because I was getting paid to travel around the world and shoot food and tell stories through food. And I thought, if I do this for the rest of my life, I am like set. So Food Network started in 93 and you joined Food Network pretty young. When it, was, it was pretty young still, right? It wasn't where it, the brand name it was. it is today. I think before Food Network, chefs weren't celebrities yet. And Food no. Network changed that. Did you know that this is where the world was going when you joined Food Network? No, because think about it. Like before Food Network, what do we think about for food TV? We think about PBS. We think about Julie Child, Martin Yan, Jacques Pepin, Galloping Gourmet. That was the only food television we really had at the time. And it was very simple. It, we're going to be in their studio kitchen and they're going to make some food. And it's not fast. It's a full half-hour show with no commercials. Once in a while, there were some restaurant shows, like I think Great Chefs of America or something like that. But no one really was thinking about food televisions. Food Network was kind of the first one to kind of make it more mainstream and more entertainment that would happen not just on the weekends, but five days a week, daytime and nighttime. And when I joined, that was the beginning of daytime Food Network, where you had Rachel Ray, Johnny DeLaurentis, Back then, you had Bobby doing shows like Boy Meets Grill. You had Michael Chiarello, Sandra Lee, Paula Dean. So those were kind of the folks who started to make a name for themselves and become celebrities. I really think it's the emeralds of the world that kind of made chefs into celebrities. So what are the conversations like going on at the time when you guys are on the cutting edge of this new... Because today, everyone watches Chef's Table on Netflix, right? Everyone knows about 
all these chefs and goes to like that world didn't exist yet. Right. And so you guys were pushing the edges at that time. Like what was it like working there? And what are the conversations like around that topic? It was back then. And again, we're talking 1999 to like 2003, 2004. Their goal was to really do food that was accessible. What can we show people that they could feel they can pull off at home? So you have someone like Ina Garden who makes you feel like, okay, Ina, you might live in the Hamptons and have a lifestyle that doesn't really necessarily reflect my lifestyle if I live in the middle of America. But when you make a roast chicken, when you do a vegetable or a salad or dessert, you give me that confidence that I can do exactly what you did. She just made food seem easy, doable, and impressive. And all of a sudden, if you're throwing a dinner party, you'd be like, oh, this is an Ina recipe. Everyone at the table's like, oh, oh my gosh, what is it? And they get excited. And so it kind of brought joy into the kitchen. Someone like Rachel Ray, she understood that everyone's busy, families are busy. You really don't have time to, you know, labor in the kitchen for hours and hours. And so her promise was, I'm going to show you how to make this meal in 30 minutes. And when she recorded her show, she was cooking in real time in 30 minutes. There were no swap outs. And so if Rachel can do that in 30 minutes, then most people can try to do it. And so that's kind of what Food Network was doing. It was giving people the confidence to cook in the kitchen. And it was also, a lot of people say to me, Food Network was playing in the background. I'd have the TV on and I would just let the cooking show play in the background. I wasn't necessarily sitting there with a piece of paper writing down word for what they were doing, but I just liked hearing their voice because I think when someone talks about food in a very instructional way, it's relaxing. It's good background sound. And you can kind of tune out, but still kind of pay attention. And if you're interested in making a dish, you just download the recipe later and then make it at your own leisure when you have the time to do it. One of the things you talked about when you're learning college was how to tell a story and also how to tell the story visually. And you took those skills and you brought it to the Food Network as they were learning how to tell a story with food. One of the things that really stood out to me earlier when you talked about how your father cooked his meal was that you basically were able to implant images in my mind audibly, like basically audibly, right? And those are incredible. I was just, my mind was blown as you were describing that. So how do you tell a story and how do you tell a story visually? Could you just kind of walk us through your thinking? Yeah, I think the trick is whenever I read a recipe, I have to always be prepared when I'm doing it for television or if I'm telling a story about it. Every ingredient has a story. There has to be at least three talking points about an ingredient, something about the, the steps of the recipe. You have to make it conversational. So if I'm describing how to make a Pomodoro sauce, okay, so you take two cans of peeled Italian tomatoes. Oh, okay, I've seen it at the supermarket. Got it. Just got to buy a can of tomatoes. All right, then in the pan, you've got extra virgin olive oil, something nice and fruity. Put it in there, get it until nice is hot, and then you put in some garlic. You know, you slice that garlic paper, paper thin. Just want that golden crisp edge. And then you add in some basil, bring out the aromatics. And then you add the tomato sauce and then you start describing the aromas, you know, like garlic sizzling the oil, the tomatoes that go from something that's very raw and tinny to something that's sweet, something that's tart. And then you kind of know like, okay, now what are you going to do with that sauce? So whenever I would work with chefs being in front of the camera, a lot of chefs are trained to cook. How do I get a dish on a table, whether it's a cookbook or out to a diner in the dining room? And so I'd say to them, you know how to cook. I'm not challenging you to cook. You could be blindfolded and you'll get through the recipe. I am now challenging you to tell me the story of this recipe. 
you are the storyteller for this recipe. So for every ingredient that's in your recipe, you have to have at least three talking points about that ingredient. It could be a fact, like how to store basil, or it could be a personal memory about the first time you ate basil, or it could be something about how that's going to transform. It could be culinary tips, like food hacks, as we like to call them now in the social media world. Like people love little tips. And when you're doing something repetitive, let's say you're stirring the sauce because it needs like eight minutes before you do the next step. I always say to them, whenever there's a repetitive motion in the recipe, that's a golden opportunity to tell a story. Because you don't have to pay attention. Like pretend you're live on television right now and you've got to like keep the attention of the audience. Well, how are you going to keep them engaged if all you're doing is stirring the pot eight minutes? That's boring. But tell me something about it. Because when we tell our friends, oh, did you see this person making that dish? You're not going to recite what happened in the recipe. You're going to tell the story about, oh my God, and then they told a story about how he used to do this, or he came up with this, or he made this big mistake, and he dropped this on the counter. People want stories because they want to feel like you're relatable, that they have similar memories, that they want to chime in. So that's the importance of being a storyteller, is that you can take a recipe, but you have to tell me a story about everything that you touch. And then as a talent, you'd have to personalize it because I can hire any actor or actress to do a cooking demo. But what's going to make them become a household name is they have to have some kind of interesting story or background that draws you in, that makes you think, oh, okay, but did you hear about that person's story? Like you can't make stuff up. People's stories are their own experiences. And so when you share that, that's what makes something really, really memorable. Yeah. How did you uh, help them kind of cultivate finding their interesting story and kind of prompting the personalization? Well, we do something called media training. And as a media trainer for for television, I always say to everybody, okay, the first thing we're going to do is a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Has nothing to do with your outlook on food. It's boring. It could be sliced white bread, jar of conventional supermarket peanut butter, and another conventional jar of like jam. I don't care. It's not about the food. What I want you to do is to actually go through the exercise of doing a demo and understand the balance between looking at your cutting board and the food in front of you and looking right into the lens. Because most chefs are trained to just look at their food, so they never look up. And so to say to them, okay, look up, okay, smile, people don't realize that when you're not purposely smiling, it can look like you're angry. You don't mean to look like that. You're just in your like resting face. And so you're always saying, okay, you got to smile. You've got to like, and it seems fake and so weird. But when you watch the video, you then realize like, oh, you just look like you're having a good time. When I ask them to do a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, I then record the video and I'm like, okay, just go. And I just want to hear you tell it from beginning to end. And so they kind of go through the motion. You can tell that they're getting into a story, but then they lose their train of thought of where they were with the food. And then they're spending a long time with a lot of dead silence because they don't really know what to say anymore. And then we go through the very painful part of watching it together. And if you're a person who doesn't like watching yourself on camera, you're really not going to like watching this. But it's the only way you're going to grow and get better is by seeing the things that maybe, oh, Maybe if I do a little bit of this, less of that, you then find a happy medium. And that's when I chime and say, okay, you see how you did that? That would be a great time to tell me a story about this. And so then I ask them, like, do you have any memories? And so I try to like prompt them with situations where they're like, well, yeah, there was that time. Like, great, tell that story. So we then work through an exercise and then we kind of choreograph what stories do you want to tell? When do you want to tell it? And how often you need to look up? And then we do the whole exercise again. 
And then they can see the difference. And then if we want, we do a third one over. And then at some point, you do too much, you're not going to go anymore. It becomes exhausting. Then the next step is to actually do a dish that does mean something to you because then you're armed with lots of stories. There has to be something really memorable about this. Like, why do you want to teach people how to make that? So that is how you kind of teach people how to become storytellers. And the truth is that Food Network, when they were brand new to doing this, most people struggled in front of the camera. They just didn't really know. And if you're asking them to do this for a 12-hour day, five days a week, for two to three weeks straight, because we've been commissioned to do 13 episodes, it's a struggle. And in a way, you kind of break people down so you can build them back up. It's sometimes there are tears. Sometimes there's this like, I don't want to do this. It's frustrating. But when you get through it and you're on the other side of it and then you watch yourself, if you get renewed for a season two, then season one was boot camp. And season two is like, all right, I know the crew. I know what you're going to ask. I know I need close-ups of it. I know I need to smile more. What are my stories? So all of a sudden, it becomes second nature to be a storyteller as you're cooking that you can then appear in front of a live audience and know exactly how to engage them because you've spent quite a bit of intense time training. A lot of your work, you're traveling to different places, right? So the set's not always the same. Like, for example, going like My Country, My Kitchen, or Chow Mari Batali, you're traveling into different places. The set's not always the same. As well as like with my country, for example, the person that's the host or the chef is not the same too. And so how do you deal with the variables with every single episode? You have to kind of, I mean, the thing is, if you're having someone be a host or they're a guest, it has to be authentic to them. I can give them a script and say, okay, say all these lines, but then it's very stilted. That's not their language. That's not the words they would have chosen. And so when I start hanging out with somebody on set, it's almost like I'm studying them very intensely for the next 24 hours. What quirks do they have? What's getting them really excited? What are things that are like, oh, yeah, that makes me uncomfortable. I really have to pay attention to that. So that way I then create an environment for them where they feel at ease. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes trust. Just because I've been doing this for a while, the moment you turn a camera on somebody, you're like, okay, now look at the camera and smile. And there's no one giving you a reaction. You'll be into like black hole. It's really hard. And so it's my job to be their cheerleader, to be their like emotional support person and to, you know, have them trust me where I'm like, I know this feels weird. Just trust me. Or let's do a second take. And when they watch how it's edited together, the little things that they stress about, I'm like, don't worry about that. We will not fix it and edit, but we're going to pick the very best in the edit. And when they watch in the edit room, it's just like, oh, wow, I don't even remember that happening. It's almost like childbirth. It's like, oh, I remember how painful the process was, but oh my God, look at this. It's gorgeous. So when you go into a location, it could be like, I've been in so many tiny kitchens where camera crew doesn't fit, where there's no room for lights. I've been in situations where it's a storm outside and I'm dealing with sound that I've got to like work around. I've shot outdoors where there are flies everywhere and I can't have a fly land on something, even though that's normal and happens in real life. So you kind of go through every scenario you can think of, different personalities to work with. You have to know what's my shot list. What do I need to bring back to the editor? And what sound bites do I need to capture? I could always add more stuff in voiceover if the show has voiceover. And I could always shoot extra B-roll that doesn't involve the person just to have it. Like you have to have footage. If you come back with no footage, your editor has nothing to work with. So if I'm doing a demo in a restaurant where 
it's just under really, really tight conditions and we're not getting everything we need. I'll just say, hi, can I just get all the raw ingredients and just shoot this outside where I'm out of the way? And then I'll just get extra B-roll beauty shots of the food because as they describe certain things, I can always go back to the other shot. So it's about being very strategic of what your shot list is. You have enough content for a 20-minute or 45-minute show. I mean, how much of this was industry standard? Like when you got into Food Network versus how have things changed over time? I'm sure with new technology, there's different things you can do. What are some things that you've implemented or have been really interesting that you think perhaps as audience, we don't necessarily notice, but things that you guys have kind of added to the dimensions of storytelling or filmmaking? Wow. I mean, it's so layered because at the very beginning, the early days of Food Network, we had very simple broadcast cameras. I remember shooting the first thing in high definition. We were in Italy shooting a one-hour special with John. It was the first time I was shooting in HD. So that was new to us. But even still, like Food Network, we had really small budgets back then. And our crews was me, a camera guy, a sound guy, and maybe a local PA. That was it. And we would have to do a half-hour show, international locations. And we make it happen. So you have to learn how to be a stylist. You have to learn how to be PA and get coffee. You have to know where to source lunch for the crew. And if you're going to hit meal break, but also be present for the talent and be a media trainer and make sure the food's okay. And someone's shopping for the food. Someone's washing the dishes. So we don't leave the house a complete disaster. And now you look at food production and you're talking about, let's say, chef's table. I can't even imagine what their budget is. They're shooting with best cameras and they are definitely spending more than just two days at the location. It makes a big difference when you have a bigger budget. But bigger budget doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have better content. You could have gorgeous cinematic images, but there has to be a great story. There has to be compelling characters. Because think about all the videos that go viral. Sometimes the, the stuff that has millions of hits wasn't shot on like the fanciest camera on the planet with the most renowned director. It was something about the content that they're recording that went viral. So as important as it is to have best of the best, you really just need a great story. You need something that people are going to connect. People want an emotional experience, whether that's like, I really want to eat that dish and travel to that place, or, oh my God, that woman just made that dish and totally reminded me of my grandmother. It's really about creating an emotional reaction for people. And so how often would you say that it can be kind of formulaically kind of laid out before you shoot or in how much of it is in the moment trying to find the magic as the storyline or or the chef is cooking and then because I don't know I guess it depends on the format right or the type of show but is it mostly you try to kind of have that narrative and story created beforehand yeah I mean when it's a brand new show and you do a pilot you're starting with a blank slate. There is no formula. You're creating that formula. And you still have to have certain requirements. Like, is it a half hour show that's divided into four acts? What's the beginning, middle, and end? What are we teasing people at the beginning of the show so that they stay tuned until the very last minute and then they don't change channels and they save the next show? And that's linear television. Like, that's a very specific way of doing television, which, of course, changes now with social media and streamers and stuff like that. But you have to also be open to new things. So when a show becomes popular and goes into season 10, season 20, you still have the same formula. Like think about Chopped. It's the same formula. Mystery basket of ingredients, contestants, judges, and then your dish. There's a winner at the end. Chef's table. You find one person 
and you take them to a place and you learn about their whole life story. It's going to be a different part of the country. It's going to be different people, but it's kind of the same thing. So you're always trying to deliver a formula because if you have an audience and a following that you've been picked up for several seasons, that audience kind of wants the same thing. Like we like things that are familiar. We like using the same toothpaste that we've been using for the last 10 years. We don't really change. But if you introduce something a little bit new that doesn't take away from it, then we're open to it. So if you have a loyal following, you do something different. It's like, oh, this is fascinating. I can't wait to do it. But you don't want to change it too much. And what happens then is that show just gets canceled. At the end of the day, you've shot enough episodes, enough seasons that you just go into repeats. And even though you do have a loyal following where people are like, oh, that's a repeat, you still have a whole population of people who've never seen one episode. And so a lot of people love having a library of assets where they just constantly repeat content because you might have seen it, but there are millions of other people who've never seen that. You spent seven years at Food Network and you were on a lot of shows where you had to travel the world and meet a lot of different people. Could you tell us a little bit about who the person you became was after that experience and what you learned? When you work with so many different people, it's exhilarating. You just have access to all these different restaurants and food artists and other food journalists. So you're part of a community that's incredible. And if you love food, oh my gosh, well, why would you want to be anywhere else? And towards the end of my years of Food Network, because I was doing really successful shows, they were like, oh, well, now we want you to be a director of programming. So we want you to be more of an executive. So we want you to now oversee shows other production companies are doing. So help them do programming for our network, but you're not the one who's going to direct anymore. You're not the one that's going to be out in the field. You're not going to travel anymore. You're now going to be part of the executive team. And at that time in my life, I would never say no to that. It's another step up the ladder. Of course, I'm going to say yes to that. But as I did it, I realized how much I missed being out in the world. I missed getting my hands dirty and cooking alongside chefs and coming up with different ways to shoot food and tell stories. And so that's why I left Food Network was because I was like, oh, I miss that. And I can stay at Food Network and continue to be an executive. Or at this time in my life, why not take a chance and try something different? So that's why I started my own production company. But just because you've spent so many years becoming a very strong director or producer doesn't mean you have all the skills to run a company. Completely different business. Because now you're concerned about payroll, HR, lawyers, getting lease forms signed. You're trying to hustle and sell shows to not only Food Network, but other networks that you're hoping to develop relationships with. And it's more about being executive, except for your own company. And so the first few years of running my company, I would still try to produce and direct, at least do the first season or two, and then kind of hand that style guide to another director who would then go out and replicate what I would do while I would create another show for the company. And so the next 10 years, we had a dozen different shows, but all through Discovery. It was Travel Channel, Food Network, Cookie Channel. It was all through them, but we were just shooting different lifestyle shows. And so I walked away from Food Network being very good at being a food storyteller. But then I embarked on the next chapter, which is how do I become a businesswoman? And how do I mentor a team of people to care about food and stories as much as I do? How do I inspire people? But how do I also take other ideas and help foster their ideas? The more you realize you need to surround yourself by talented people, 
the more successful you'll be. If you try to do everything on your own and don't delegate, you'll at some point become so overwhelmed that no one wants to work with you. No one gets to feel like they're part of something. Yeah, I feel like we've glossed over or not done justice just how amazing the growth is of you holding all the different roles and growing and then building your own business. So I'd love to hear a bit about, yeah, what was it like growing the business? What were the big challenges? And really like how you stayed so driven and willing to take that big jump? I think when you're doing something, you don't think too much about what can go wrong. You just do it. If you start thinking about, ooh, but if this happens, we're never going to do it. The fears and the what ifs can completely be paralyzing for people. And so you just kind of do it and you jump in. And I guess I always told myself, well, if it doesn't work out, you can always try to get a staff job again. And I guess back then I never saw like pandemic happening or other challenges. Like you're just young and you're ambitious and you're driven. Like I was working 24 seven for years. So why would I stop? The adrenaline is still going. I'm trying to think what your original question was because I completely veered off. But I think. The biggest challenge was being a better communicator. No one teaches you as a child, and there are no courses in college where it's like, how do you work with people? How do you listen? How do you become a better listener? I heard this somewhere, and I can't remember where I heard it from. It's like, in this moment, in this conversation, do you want to be heard, hugged, or helped? Because when someone's talking to you, where they're coming from, you have to kind of understand what is it that they're trying to get? And how are you there to help them so that your relationship can evolve and get stronger? And so when you have employees and everyone's got a different personality, everyone's got a different agenda, how can you be a really good listener? And if someone makes a mistake or it doesn't really, it wasn't exactly what you're looking for, you got to communicate. Why didn't it work? What can we do better? You have to not fault them. You have to call them out. It's not like, oh, people can't read minds. You have to tell them why it didn't work, but in a very constructive way. And you also have to praise people. Like I grew up in a family where you never really got praised from my family. It was kind of expected in my family that you had to do well in school, that you had to succeed. And if you didn't check certain things off, like that was disappointing for my parents. But so they didn't give praise. And maybe the fear of failing is what propelled most of my life because I didn't want to fail. But as I've gotten older and I've worked with more people, it's like, I don't want people to be afraid of failing. I don't want them to fail, but that's part of growth. You have to fail in order to grow. So how can I be there to kind of uplift them? I believe you have to give people a chance. And if it doesn't work out, then yeah, maybe sometimes it's not meant to be. And so you make sure you give a chance, you have a conversation, but if it's not meant to be, then you have to part ways because there's no point in driving two people down a path that neither person is growing because they need to grow and they need to thrive in their life as well. And you don't want to hold back either. So that I think was the hardest part was learning how to work with other people when you're trying to lead a team, you're trying to get your vision out there, it's your name, it's your reputation, but it's a lot of people who want to help you succeed that too. So they need to succeed at the same time. Can you talk to us a little bit about IW Productions, the company you built, how production works and the shows that you created out of that? When we created IW Productions, it was about doing really food content, food, travel, cooking. I wasn't interested in doing gardening or home improvement or reality TV like that or competition. That just wasn't my thing. I love beautiful food. I love cooking and I love going to different places in the world where food is very impactful. And so the way it works is you can have an idea and you've got to create a pitch deck, kind of put the idea on paper, give idea examples of what the episodes are, 
who the cast of characters. Now, just because you put it on paper doesn't mean what you hand over is the exact blueprint of what the show is going to be. You're helping the executives visualize what this can be. And sometimes it'll lead into a, okay, here's some development money, do a sizzle reel. And you do it and either they green light it with some changes or they don't green light it and you go back to the drawing board. But hopefully you've got a show that either you've created and you bring it to them or you've developed a great relationship with network executives that they come to you and say, hey, we want to do the show. Do you think you can kind of put an idea of what that could be and a budget? Budget's really important. They want to know that you could do it within the price point that they are willing to spend. Because you say, oh yeah, whatever it's going to be, like networks won't make money. So there has to be a certain criteria of how much money you're going to spend per episode. And once you get the green light, you then build a team. We would have a team of, everyone was a freelancer at my company, but when you were working on one show to the next to the next, you were pretty much staffed. So we would have a core group of people. And then whenever we had a show go on, if it was a season of 13 episodes, it was probably the end of the day, 25 people who worked on it. So you had people on pre-production with the research and mapping out the logistics, creating a production calendar. And then you had a production crew, all the camera guys, sound guys, the locals who you hire for the day, shooting all the content. And then you have a post team who is then going through all the footage, the story producers who are then putting a script together, and then the editors who are then cutting it. So a half hour show would take, depending on what type of show it was, it could take anywhere from two days to shoot to a full week. And you're probably delivering about 20 hours of footage, maybe a little bit more. And that's being cut down to 20 minutes of content. And they probably spend three full weeks to cut it down to 20 minutes. When we did the show Man Fire Food, let's say we would start pre-production in January. We would have about two months and then we'd start to send the teams out to shoot sometime in April. We'd start somewhere where it's warm because the whole country isn't warm, but down south it's warm. So we'd start shooting episodes there. And then as we got to May and June, we would then head towards the center of the country and then out to the East Coast. And we would be done shooting in sometime mid-June. The edit team had already started putting shows together in April. And so you're kind of working in a, on a rolling basis. So if we started shooting content, let's say in April, that edit team starts to put the shows together, but the, the field team is still out there shooting content. So the field team wraps in June. The post team is probably wrapping sometime in August. The sh- series premiered sometime in the summertime. And then you're waiting for the executives to green light it to hopefully go back into production again starting next January. And if you're a successful company, you have definitely more than one show, you have several shows going on. And so you have another team who's doing the same exact thing. At one point, we had maybe four shows happening at the same time. And I think there were 25 edit rooms all going. So I would like walk down the hallway and be like, okay, let's watch this cut. Okay, now we're watching this cut. We were given a show to do an incredible deadline. It was Iron Chef Eats. I got the call in January. They're like, we're doing another competition show, like Iron Chef. I forgot what title it was, but the idea was that they were going to get all the past Iron Chef winners, Iron Chef America winners, and they were all going to compete against each other in a competition again. But they wanted to do a companion series called Iron Chef Eats. So that way you interview all these folks of where they like to go eat. So we got the call in January. Two weeks later, we actually had to start shooting. And I had three different teams. I was one of the teams. There were two others. And what was really tricky was we had, I want to say, 20 somewhat different chefs. And every chef had to talk about three different restaurants. And so we'd be like, okay, here are the cities that we're going to. Can you name restaurants that fit under the category of pizza, breakfast, fast food, Sunday supper? 
And so you kind of gave them a criteria saying, here are the themes, here are the cities, tell me what restaurants, tell me what dishes. And then once they gave us all that information, we then call these restaurants and hope they let us shoot. And then you're trying to link it all up that if that team's landing in Austin, the five restaurants that the 20 somewhat chefs out of the 20 somewhat chefs said, you're going to shoot there Monday. And that restaurant said yes for Tuesday. That restaurant said yes for Wednesday. You have 12 hours to shoot, but you have to have a 10 hour turnaround time. So if the crew wrap late, you got to start a little bit later the next day. So while one team's doing that in Austin, another team's in Chicago, another team's in New York, and then they're all getting on a plane to go to the next city. And as that's all being shot, all the footage is now being shipped to New York where 14 or 15 different edit rooms are now waiting for this footage and editing it together. And then once you have Chef A talking about this dish, Chef B, Chef C, Chef D, then an editor is merging it from all the edit rooms to create that half hour episode because we had to premiere this in April. So we were shooting nonstop for, I think, four weeks straight, mid-January until March. And then we had to do all the sit-down interviews with all the chefs and they had to narrate it. So we had to align all of their schedules to all come to New York, rent a space where we did an interview setup. And I think over the course of two weeks, interviewed those 20 somewhat chefs because that narration was then needed to be the voiceover for all the footage that was being edited. So that is like intense, get that on the air, ASAP. Whereas Manfire Fire was more like, okay, like got 13 episodes, we have all these months. And because we, it's formulaic, we knew what we had to do. There was a whole template. We knew the schedule and the deadline. But then once in a while, you get the call saying, well, here's the show. It just came up. We want to do this. And you can't say no. You know, it's work. It's more shows for your company to do. And what if it becomes successful and it goes into a season two? Well, then that's more work. So sometimes production can be really, really intense and you have to have an incredible network of people from all around the country who you've hopefully developed a great relationship with that they will want to work with you, that they will drop everything and say, oh, okay, got it. You need me on two weeks. I'll be there. Because when you worked with producers and editors and camera guys who understand your aesthetic, you just kind of say, here, take that. And they know exactly what it is that you're envisioning. And they're kind of like your eyes and ears and they do it for you. So that way, I'm not physically in 17 edit rooms doing every single episode on my own. Wow, what a story. So during that huge orchestration, were you kind of conducting the whole orchestra at that point? Yeah. I'm just making sure all the pieces fit. And then yeah. so you weren't actually shooting them. Well, I was yeah. because I was like, oh, well, I want to be a part of it. So I was directing a third of the episodes and there were two other directors. And at the same time, we had two other shows happening too. We had, I want to say, Food Paradise was happening, Unique Sweets was happening. And because those shows already had a template, they were able to kind of record on their own. And then here's the funny part. I was traveling with my cat. So remember how I said we got the call like mid-January? So I got the call in mid-January and I had to get on a plane in two weeks. I couldn't find someone to take care of my cat in such short notice. And I was traveling to three different cities. So I'm like, Wow. Okay. Simba, you're getting on a plane. And so I have photographs where here's all the gear with the crew and like we have all these baggage cars and there's the cat carrier with my kitty cat on top. But having a cat in your hotel room at the end of a long shoot day isn't so bad. Wait. So I did a little bit of Instagram stalking and I know you just got recently another cat, right? Oh my God. Bachi. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's funny. I actually, I looked up, I was like, how do you pronounce this name? B-A-C-I. And then I Googled, how do you pronounce B-A-C-I? And I got bossy. So I got <laughs> completely swindled there. But 
I mean, how are you able to have now two cats and do the work that you do? I'm a proud cat dad myself. And so it's hard to leave them at home. They need a lot of attention. They do. Okay. So Simba, when I got him in 2005, so I was still a food network when I got him. And when I started traveling a lot, when I had my company and we were really busy, I spent probably 10 months on the road. So Simba had a network of people who would cat sit him, whether they stayed in my apartment or I dropped him off someone else's apartment, Simba stayed with them. And then when the pandemic happened, I was home all the time with Simba. And I thought, oh, is this like now we're balancing life out? Because I feel like I've used real life. So now I'm home for three years during the pandemic. The weird thing is, circling back to Francis Mallman, Simba passed away when I was on Francis's Island. He had been going through kidney disease. I knew it was inevitable. And so you're kind of a, oh, do I get on a plane? Like, you don't want to stop your life. But at the same time, if this kidney's been with you for 18 years and you've been taking care of them quite intensely with kidney disease, you kind of feel guilty for leaving. But because it took two or four days to travel to Francis Island, and at the time, friends were taking care of him, he was admitted to a hospital. It got to the point where it's like, oh, do I now cancel my trip and leave? And travel for two days back home but what if i don't even make it and like here's the thing about francis mom he's like i got a satellite phone if you need to make a call do anything you just let me know but like as amazing as francis's trip was it was also a time where i had to put my cat down over facetime like hard really hard and so after he passed away in april i nope not getting another cat not right now and if you like cats, you chances are you follow a lot of cat accounts on Instagram. And so you're often scrolling through cat yes, content, right? And sometimes it's just, ha ha, that's funny. And then some of it is like, oh, look at that kitty for adoption. And one day in September, woke up scrolling through cat content and I see this video of this little kitten. His name was Jake and he was so cute. That I just started crying. Like, oh my God, he's so cute. Messaging DM. I'm like, hi, do you think Jake's going to be fluffy? Like, you know, I don't know like what to say. I just like love this little kitty. And it's just like, yeah, I think so. I'm like, okay, I'm going to fill out an application. And you're not really serious about adopting a cat, but you also don't want to like not have that opportunity. Like, you don't want that taken away from. So all of a sudden, I fill an adoption. 30 minutes later, I get a call from the adoption agency. Hi, do you want to do a phone interview? I'm like, okay, I guess so. Do a phone interview. And then all of a sudden, they're like, do you want to do a Zoom with the foster mom? Like, I guess so. Sure. Now you're doing a Zoom with Jake and his foster mom. And she's like, all right, so you think you're going to adopt him? Like, yeah, but you live in San Diego and I live in New York because Bachi lives in San Diego. And they're like, I don't know. And then she started like, and then he just kind of like settled into her arms. And he was so sweet. And before I knew it, I woke up having coffee. And two hours later, I was booking a plane ticket to go to San Diego. And I, you know, and also like it helps to rack up more Delta miles. So, you know, of course, I'm going to like get on a plane. So, yeah, I flew out there a week later and met him and I named him Bachi because Bachi means two things. It means the Italian candy that's made in Perugia, which is hazelnut chocolate. And Bachi's forehead has a little bit of brown, a little bit of black. So I'm like, oh, you look like a little hazelnut chocolate candy. And all the videos that his foster mom is sending me, he loves giving licks, loves licking people. So I'm like, oh, Bachi's giving kisses. So I'm like, oh my God, we're going to name him Bachi. So that's how he got his name Bachi. I brought him back home and he just makes me laugh because he's a kitten and he's got all this energy and he's just the sweetest thing. So sometimes you just got to go with it. 
Oh my God, there's a kitty. Oh, right on cue. Per- perfect yeah. timing. Oh my God. Oh my God, your kitty almost so- looks like bocce. Okay, I feel <laughs> like I need to turn on my camera now. Hang on. You want to meet bocce? Oh, yes. Okay, hang on. Yes. All right. I mean, I happens. wasn't prepared to be in front of the cameras. Okay, bear with me. Hi. Hey. <laughs> Hi. Hello. Oh, Things well, only I'm... cats will make us do. Oh. And also, if we give lips. Are you looking at the kitty? Oh, you are. <laughs> How old is Bachi now? Bachi six months. Oh, you're so sleepy. Oh, I'm still kidding. No kisses for the cat. Did you just hear that? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. So, cute. so that's Bachi. Six months, but he has also like fluffiest tail. Mm. Yeah. Like, a lot of fur. A lot of fur, but because he's a, a kitten, he hasn't started shedding yet. So, are you? Do you travel much these days for work, or are you able to? No, well, what's your schedule like? So, my schedule is wake up. What do I do for the day? That's kind of what my schedule is like during the pandemic. It really did a number on lifestyle television because you couldn't travel, couldn't get on a plane, can't shoot in restaurants because everyone's closed. We're barely doing outdoor dining at the time, and we weren't shooting. And the only shows that were in production had to be in contained studio environments. So competition shows, maybe cooking demonstration shows also, because you're in someone's kitchen, you're all getting COVID tests, and you have a lot of control over people who might be sick or and keeping everybody safe. So travel shows kind of stopped. And once travel started picking up again, networks weren't necessarily green lighting travel shows anymore. So if you think about it, who's traveling? You had Stanley Tucci going to Italy. But they shot that before the pandemic. They finished shooting season one when travel opened up again. And then they did season two. But then CNN completely changed and they decided we don't want to have that kind of programming on our network anymore because now we just want to be strictly news. And I don't believe Chef's Table went to production this year. They did pizza, but that was last year. I can't think of any travel shows that are really happening. I think there's High on the Hog that just came out on Netflix, but I don't know when that went to production. But a lot of streamers and network executives are greenlighting competition. And they're also greenlighting a lot of celebrity-driven shows, like English celebrities, like Selena Gomez. I think when social media came along and you see number of followers, when you see number of followers, you think, oh, that's your built-in audience. So we're going to give that person a show. We're going to give that person a cookbook deal because if they have all those followers, that means that you have an audience. And so it's harder to pitch a show with talent who doesn't have a huge reputation already and doesn't have a number of followers. It's hard to pitch a travelogue show. No one's really doing that. And so right now, for me, it's trying to figure out, well, how do I fit in? Because I fit in really easily for 25 years. But if your whole industry changes, well, I now need to change. You know, it's that word, pivot. And if you look at all the content out there now, it's either competition or you have this saturation of food content on social media. And there are YouTube channels, but all those folks who are successful on YouTube have been doing this for some time. It's not like they decided yesterday to do this and all of a sudden they have a million subscribers. They've been at it for a while. So an interesting time because it's like, oh, where does this go? And also that's linear television. Linear television is also changing a lot. People don't want to commit necessarily to a half hour cooking show or a food show. And so when you have people who just want things very fast, what, 10 second videos, maybe a minute, oh my gosh, five minutes is forever. 
well, if there's no audience who wants that, then executives aren't going to greenlight that. So it's a tricky time right now to figure out what's going to happen next. That's so interesting because I feel like it maybe is just my media circle, but I thought the post-COVID travel rebound was very palpable. And maybe because of the economy now, people are a little bit more careful about their wallets, but it seems like travel's back in full swing. And I would think that looking forward, that would still be something of interest. So it's interesting that it sounds like there's a huge industry shift in terms of like the paradigm. And to your point, do you think a lot of that has to do with new forms of content, like short form content, whether it's YouTube, TikTok, Instagram? And how are you thinking about, you know, like you said, positioning yourself for that, like kind of dynamic shift in the industry? It's been something that I've thought a lot about every single day for the last three years and even more intensely this last year because I think we're all thinking, oh, okay, great, it's going to get better. And so 2021, 2022, 2020, it's only going to get better. And for our industry in particular, for food television, it's gotten harder. I haven't had so many people who I've worked with over the last 20 years reach out to me looking for work because... If we're no longer doing cooking shows or we're doing a lot less of it and we're no not really doing travelogue shows, like, oh, okay, huh, now what do I do? And yeah, they're right. People are traveling. People are spending money. But you don't necessarily see that as a, here's a host traveling somewhere. Like I think about Eugene Levy. He did a show for Apple TV because apparently there are certain things that he's like, ever want to do that. And so they're like, okay, we're just going to put you in the exact situations that you don't want to be in. So here's Eugene Levy, who everyone loves. Here's travel, putting this kind of like man in a situation that he really doesn't want to be. So that's going to be entertaining. But I don't know how that did in the ratings. I don't think that got picked up for another season. I don't think he meant to go out there to be the next Bourdain. I think everyone at one point says, oh, I want to be the next Bourdain, but you can't replace Bourdain. That was Bourdain. You have to create a completely different show. If I had to pick a show that really made an imprint in food, it's The Bear. But The Bear is a scripted show. It's not a documentary show. It's not a lifestyle show. It's purely scripted. Actors, writers, you know, and it's on Hulu. So, and that does incredibly well. I'm drawn into it. You know, that's what I binge watch. But that's fiction. And what we've been doing is nonfiction. So I'll admit, sometimes it's scary because it's like, oh, it's possibly a blank slate now. It's like, oh, everything was going so great. I've been so successful and I have these great skill sets. But it doesn't matter if you have the skill sets if no one really wants to use them, right? So I think that's the big question mark is how do I immerse myself back into this world if that's what I want to do? with all these new rules and the new dynamics and how people want content and how to create that business model again. It's interesting because when you described your job 10 years ago, you were talking about how you had these teens that are shot with film and this film was being sent into New York and you have these editing rooms where they're... And then now, I think with like TikTok and YouTube, you just have like one or two people that are shooting with their phones that are basically just cutting things together and, and putting together and building an audience over time. Have you been studying like what's going on in social media and what are you seeing out of just curiosity in terms of like food and how people are doing it with the new form of social media? I'm just as guilty for loving to shoot on my iPhone because we haven't been doing these big blowed up series for television. I still get the itch to be creative. And so I go out with my iPhone 
And I just record in HD and 24. Like, oh, hey, do you mind if I come shoot at your bakery? I really love this croissant. I, I'd love to see how it's made. And I say to them, I'm not asking to be paid. I don't want anything for free. I just want to record it. And since I'm here, if there are other things that I can do a reel about, then let's do it. And I'll put it on my Instagram. I'll show it to you to make sure you're okay with it. If you want to be a collab on it, great, but you don't have to. I do it purely because I love it. And I also love the fact that I'm restricted to 90 seconds because if I can have all the time in the world, I would be like dwelling on every shot and all that stuff. Because like it forces me to be like, you just have 90 seconds and that's it. So I love the iPhone and that I can just get in, get into the bowl, quickly move up, do this, do that. When I had a TV crew with like, where's the light set up? Where's the tripod? Okay, you're perfectly angled just for that one shot. Okay, now we got to go over here. Okay, got to take the tripod move it here. The time it took between every single shot was 10 times longer than the actual shot itself. And it got to the point where, let's say we're shooting someone making chocolate chip cookies. A lot of things are in a bowl. The dry ingredients are in a bowl, and then it goes into our mixer. I can't have the camera do like, get the eggs, and now go over to the bowl. Go back on the counter, now go on the bowl. We would have to shoot in a way where I'm like, let's do all the shots that are on the counter first while the camera's down here. And now let's position the camera there, and now we can do all the shots this way. So you have to be really smart about that. But with the iPhone, like, Okay, here. Okay, where do you need me next? And then all of a sudden, I've got hours of footage on my iPhone that I now have to sift through. I'm a little lazy. I don't have an edit software on my computer. I just literally go to Reels and like, that clip. Okay, shorten that up a little bit longer. How does that go with the song? Next clip. Like, it is so ridiculous, but I am so stubborn and lazy to actually get a software that I'm like, I'll just sit on my couch for the next four hours and just edit this on real. But then I'll watch it and I enjoy it because it's a music video. What I do is very different from everyone else in that there's no voiceover. It is telling the story of a dish from beginning to end and it's some popular song that we all recognize. So it's a music video. It's a food music video. If I had to describe all the other content out there, it's a lot of fast, 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 fats. Or it is someone telling a very personal story as voiceover as they're making a dish very beautifully. I'm always fascinated by Joshua Weissman because he's just so smart and so, but it's fast, like wicked fast. And he had all these special effects and all these sound effects and stuff. I can tell when somebody has taken a whole team of people and it really took a lot of time to do versus someone doing it very casually. But anyone who's shooting content will tell you it is a commitment. It's a full-time job. It doesn't happen in five seconds. Like you've got to get the food, you've got to light it, you've got to move tripod by yourself, then you need to get shots of yourself. It just takes time. And as much as I love that, it's like I got so used to having a team, like stylists and camera guys and editors. And what I do casually as real could be 10 times more cinematic and stunning and spectacular with a real crew. But that's money and time commitment and also someone who has to green light that and pay for that. Whereas me doing this on my own free time doesn't cost me anything, but also doesn't pay me. I'm not making money during this. So that's the trick is that I see what's happening in social media. And I know that really successful videos, whether it's YouTube or TikTok, they're spending their entire career doing this. They're, that's their full-time job. And how their income is coming in is from different avenues. And that's how they succeed on that. Do I want to go down a path? I don't know. That's like starting from scratch. But I've also created a lifestyle where I have a mortgage to pay. I have my health insurance to pay. I have responsibilities because after spending 20 somewhat years, you built a company and you've created a certain lifestyle for yourself. So in order to maintain that lifestyle, you need to have a business that kind of sustains that. 
So I'm sure there are people who do really, really well on YouTube, but that didn't happen overnight. That takes years to build. Do I have those years to build? And what if it doesn't take off? Like, there's so many risks. One of the things that you also mentioned too, I thought was interesting was how fast everything was and all the cuts. And like, I think it's just really interesting that now the content has to play to the algorithm versus before where you just had like Food Network, right? You had that one time slot and you're basically, you had 30 minutes or you had the hour and you're just basically recording and creating content around that 30 minutes an hour. But now you're, everyone is competing for the algorithm and trying to grab your attention enough so that people will stay on, on your 90 second video. So I'd imagine that it just changes the content as well. You know, there are some videos I cream like, oh, that's a great song, but oh, it's not trending. So if I don't pick the right song, the algorithm is not going to put my reel up. Like I did this amazing reel in Japan. I spent hours on the airplane editing that reel with the terrible Wi-Fi that I had crossing oceans. And when I posted it, whatever time it actually posted, I had, I don't know, 100 views, barely any likes. And I thought, oh, the algorithm is against me right now. I spent all those hours. And I hate that I'm trying to satisfy an algorithm. Like, who are you? Oh my God. Like you complete, like, doesn't matter what I did. And, you know, in a way, when you did a television show, you had an audience in order to have ratings. And that was going to determine whether or not you were going to be picked up for another season. And so you're always trying to satisfy an audience. You can do what you think is the most magnificent piece of art out there. But unless you're really wealthy, you don't need the money. You have to sell that to somebody. And so there has to be a compromise of what your vision is and what you want to do. But is there an appetite for it? Is there an audience for it? Are there people who are willing to pay for that? And that's always tricky because sometimes we have to do what other people want in order to kind of get our foot in the door and to earn the trust and respect. And then we slowly start to reveal more of who we are. But it only comes after working really hard to get someone's respect and attention. But right now I'm trying to get the attention of an algorithm which just doesn't like me. Yeah, that was such a deep insight and maybe the best I've heard about what it truly feels like, right? To be a creator in the new world. If you're comfortable sharing, what leads have you pursued, right? Like one is obviously reels. How have they gone? And also which were actually fulfilling? So yeah, basically like which leads have you been kind of taking a look at and where are any of them promising and still fulfilling? I mean, it started from Francis Nauman because I was doing some reels before, like last year, very casually, but just doing to help chef friends. Be like, what do you mean you haven't promoted this pepperoni pizza that made a comeback? Oh my God, let me shoot a reel. Like I've got the skills, like just let me come shoot this. So it became as a very casual thing. Also, I'm like, well, I'm having fun because it's music. Whereas whenever we would edit shows, we'd have a music library. We just didn't have the money to license music that was popular songs. So now I've got every single song at my fingertips that I can edit to. Like, yeah, let's do Taylor Swift this summer. Like all Taylor Swift songs. When I was on Francis Island, it was just me and like less than 10 people. So I was like front and center with my phone to get all of the demos and get the best angles. So all we did was cook all day. So I just had stories every day to record. And because I was also warning my cat, I was home all the time. And so I was just on my couch and like, I'm just going to edit this. And so as much as I love to cook and people say it's very meditative and that could be very healing. To me, what was healing was editing, was creating content because that's what I'd spent my whole life doing. And in a way, that's my identity. And so editing those Francis reels was all about a softer storytelling 
It's slower music. It's not fast paced. And you're kind of, it's almost in a way like a chef's table because you're on this beautiful island with one of the most famous chefs in the world. And you're just watching us make a fish dish or you're watching something cook over a fire. And then Japan was more like fast and frenetic because that's what Tokyo and Kyoto can be like. It's like, oh, okay, okay, what are we going on right now? And then once in a while, we shoot demos of me cooking in the kitchen, but that becomes a full day. Like, oh, I'm going to make this cake because I have to for someone's birthday, but oh, if I'm going to record it, I have to like stop and get a shot. I got to record a video. Oh, I need to like record me now doing something because I need that like little pops of me throughout the video at some point. And all of a sudden making a cake took twice as long because I'm now worrying about content and the time of the day, the daylight coming into my apartment at the right time. And then I've got to edit that. So I like doing it. And it's really rewarding, but that's not going to pay my mortgage. It's just not. So I don't know what the leads are. If you know any leads, let me know. I think right now I'm just trying to figure it out. Yeah, I actually love these types of conversation and Will knows that. So I would love to yeah, have a long conversation just on that because I find it fascinating of like different angles. So examples, and I'm sure you're already connected, but just connecting with different existing creators or discussing different business models that might plug into, et cetera, et cetera. But for another time, because I could go a long time and I think it's fascinating, but also recognize that it's got to be so tough. I'm in startups. I have to pivot just about every two years, usually, and it's a rough go. So I'm sorry you're going through it. I know it's very tough. So yeah. And I also worry about like age discrimination. Is someone going to look at my resume? And at one point, they'll say, wow, that's impressive. Like two columns worth of dozens of shows for 25 years. But then on the flip side, people think, oh, but you're like old school. We don't do that anymore. Like this isn't Food Network. This is TikTok. And so you try to convince them. We're like, yeah, but I'm smart and I can like figure it out. It's not going to happen like that, but you got to give me a chance. And it's really hard to then compete with a whole other generation of content creators who that's their toolkit. They live and breathe it. So for me to figure out how they do it, yeah, I'm behind then. So I'm always trying to kind of find ways to reinvent what my brand is, what my look is, what my storytelling skills are. How do I still stand out in my own way? Because I don't want to just be a carbon copy of everyone else because then it just looks like, oh, she's just trying to be everyone else to catch up and compete with them. It's like, no, I still have to be true to myself, but I do have to pivot because I'm not trying to impress the other content creators. I'm trying to impress somebody to say, no, we want to create a project with you that is going to be on a bigger scale that then, now look, if I could somehow change the culinary television landscape, that would be a legacy to be proud of, right? And that takes a lot because I think about what, what changed it. Top Chef changed the landscape. Chef's Table changed the landscape. What's the next thing that's going to change the landscape that's not fiction? Because I think the bear changed the landscape, but that's fiction. What's going to change the landscape in nonfiction? And until that landscape changes and all of a sudden there's a huge new hit, you need that for everyone else to say, we want to do that now. Like we need to do that. But until that happens, they're going to say, let's just do another season of a competition show. Let's have a different competition, but the same host, same judges, same contestant, but we're switching them around a little bit. And that's just not going to go away until something new comes along. And I'm trying to figure out what is that landscape so that way we can create we can go into the next chapter i'm not saying we don't do this kind of content that social media isn't relevant i am fully aware how relevant it is and how this is the business model for many 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 people and many many businesses that have deep pockets but 
we have to evolve and do something different. Like there's a whole audience out there who misses cooking shows. I'm not saying do dump and stir again, but we do miss learning how to cook. We do miss traveling through the lens of food. But how do we do it differently? But it's still kind of the same. How does streaming change uh, food television from going on a, like a network television and now people have stopped watching television and just are watching streaming? How did that change food television? It changed it in that streaming is not about having multiple seasons. For networks, it was always about, oh, if you were doing well, you were going to several seasons, season two, season 10. I think Guy with Triple D is season 30-something at this point. That was the sign of success, was that you're always renewed. But in television, you all get canceled at some point. Friends got canceled at some point. You know, no matter how successful it is, it all gets canceled at some point. But if you were able to kind of ride it for as long as possible, that was great. Streaming, it's not about having multiple seasons. You have some iconic shows like Chef's Table that did go into several seasons. But for a streaming service, the goal is to get more subscribers. So if you already have subscribers who love Chef's Table, well, how are you going to get other people? So you're creating new content. You're creating something completely different. It's almost like, make this, let's take a six on the wall, maybe we'll do another season, but it's really not about having a hundred shows that just constantly get renewed. It's about creating completely new things so that you're appealing to the globe. When you think about network television, that was America, that you may be licensed internationally, but when you're doing a show on Netflix or Hulu, it's going out to the world. And every country has a very specific need or like of what they consider entertaining content. What I like watching in America might not necessarily be what they love watching in France. Same thing, what they love in France might not be our taste in America. So when you put a show on Netflix, it's like, it's got to have international appeal. And so it's people are binging. That's also a big thing. But it really isn't about, oh, let's find a successful show and just do it over and over and over again. How did Chef's Table change the game? You know what Chef's Table did? It made food go into slow motion all the time. Everything was in slow motion. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, but if you shoot in slow motion, it'll be like sexy. And it's like, slow motion is fantastic when it's used correctly. When you just slow something down just for the purpose of slowing it down, it's like, okay, now you're just trying to make it something that it's not. And people don't also realize like there's a difference between purposely shooting in slow motion versus shooting in a regular speed and then slowing it down in the edit room. When you're shooting in slow motion, you have much more resolution to work with. The other thing that people don't realize is that when you're shooting in slow motion, when you say, oh, okay, I'm going to shoot this like picture of milk going into a bowl, I'm going to shoot in slow motion. Person's like, okay, got it. So then they feel the need to pour it really, really slow. And all you've done was make something move like molasses. It's not effective. So I have to remind people, I'm directing them, if you're shooting something in slow motion, the actual action has to be fast. And that's how it comes across as slow motion. And they're like, wait, what? And it's like, just finish so really fast. Like, don't think about it. But Chef's Table made everything very, like, cinematic slow. Like, everything was slow. And now all of a sudden you have the function, slow-mo, on your phone. But in seriousness, Chef's Table made food food porn in a very different way. So you had cooking shows, like when we did Jada's show, that was a food porn. So everything was like super, super close and you had the sound effects. Everything that was happening, you could hear it, like ASMR was happening when no one even knew what ASMR was back then. And everything was like super close. You could see like the sweat on an eggshell, right? So that was food porn for cooking shows. Chef's Table was food porn in the world. 
Like now we're going out to Korea. We're going to Japan. And we're going to shoot things with beautiful lighting. And all their beauty shots are like, it almost looks like portrait, like an artist's canvas. And then there's the graphic that slides in with the name of the dish. Yeah, it's just shot beautifully. It's like a coffee table book of food that's come to life. That's what Chef's Table did earlier. And also finding people with really rich stories. That's the other thing about Chef's Table was really shining a light on someone who was so influential in the food world and giving them a whole episode that kind of you were immersed in the world with them. And so everyone now was like, oh, let's shoot things beautifully and, and slow and make it cinematic. So now it's always like, oh, it's like Chef's Table. Like now all of a sudden that's a reference for a lot of people. Beautiful. I guess my last question on this one is, are there any formulas then you're playing with? Because it sounds like now it's optimizing content that for 30 minutes, for production, for the additional attributes, right? That your skill and a large team can put together. Have there have you seen any formulas that you're kind of thinking about and testing? Can I tell you in the beginning of the pandemic, my team and I, when we weren't doing actual shows, we're like, okay, but let's do development. We created such spectacular pitch decks. Like, oh, I can totally see that show going on Netflix. This one, absolutely can see it. So beautiful. I mapped out like seasons worth of episodes, like so great that they're now sitting on my computer because we're just not green lighting shows like that anymore. So now what do I do? I can't take those ideas and make them into five-minute videos. It's a completely different thing. So it's like, boy, if someone wanted to go back to how we were doing travelogue and food and really diving deep into food, I've got the best pitch decks. But now they're like, no, it's more like, okay, which famous person wants to have a food show right now? Or some influencer who has this amazing audience, how do we support that on YouTube a little bit more? You know, I spoke with someone who was really insightful about how YouTube works. And he said, honestly, maximum like five to 10 minutes. Like, you don't want to be so short. It's not TikTok. But at the same time, it's like, you're never going to do, because you can't do a half hour show. That's too long. Oh, okay, got it. But how... YouTube works, how advertisers work, subscribers work, fame is television, like how do you retain an audience? How do you make sure someone watches at the end that they don't tune out early? But it's a very, it's a whole other world that it's like, oh, okay, and people have been doing it for a while. Okay, I'm going to switch tactics and we're going to go to food, which you probably thought that's what most of this was going to be on. So hopefully you're not upset. No. So Lee's a huge foodie. Last time he was visiting me, I think he hit like seven restaurants in one day. It was unbelievable. I couldn't believe he was still standing. So I'd love to hear if you were going to take him on a food crawl, where would you take Lee? Oh, uh, what city are we going to? Oh, here, here, here. Definitely New York. Oh, New York. Okay. So here's the thing. When you're ready to like venture out of New York, every time I travel, I create this list. So I have a list for Paris, I have a list for Rome, other parts of Italy, Copenhagen. And when people are like, oh, where should I go eat? I'm like, I'll send you my list. And the list not only describes and lists where to go eat, it tells you what day you should go, what you should order, and like things that how to get a reservation and stuff like that. So like Paris, I've been working on that for over 10 years. Like it's a great list. Copenhagen, I've been there a dozen times. Like I know Copenhagen. So if you ever are traveling internationally, you should always reach out to me because I've done the research, I've eaten the food, and I'm going to say exactly like where to go and how to map it out. So that way, like some sweet, some savory, heavy, rich, high end, low end. So it's not like 
Oh, it's all Michelin star. That's boring. So happy to eat those. New York. Okay. So New York, there are definitely a few favorites that I always go to. It's important for me to try new restaurants, especially if everyone's talking about it, because I kind of need to know what they're talking about and put things into context. But it's rare for me to find a restaurant where I'm like, I want to go there again. Like I'm thinking about returning right away. So in New York, if I say you have to go to any one of Missy Robbins restaurants, so Lilia I love, as well as Missy. Lilia for more like starters, entrees, seafood, meat. Missy is all about pasta, antipasti, and gelato. If you want other Italian, Teresi, freaking love Teresi. I actually don't even go to the restaurant anymore. I wait in line at 4.45. They open the doors at 5. And I always get a seat at a really luxurious, spacious bar. I already know the guy working behind the bar. His name is John. And I always order the tortellini pomodoro because it's big, fat, cheesy tortellini in a pomodoro store so that they use with cherry tomatoes. And then over each tortellini, they trade with melted butter. So when you eat that, why is it different? Like, because there's melted butter on it. And then they are brilliant with duck. And the only other duck that's better is at their other restaurant, The Grill. And The Grill, to me, is the iconic New York City luxe. I'm going to, like, get dressed up. I'm going to be fancy. I'm going to be eating with the financial crowd or maybe the celebrities. Or that's, like, the epitome New York experience. Best burger is going to be either the Nines for a piano bar type of situation. It's a very peppery but delicious burger. Then there's Red Hook Tavern, which is way out in Red Hook, Brooklyn. It's a little far, but... It's a beautiful tavern, burgers fat, and it's got like cheese that's on the top that just drapes along the sides and has just a slice of onion. And then there's a pickle on some cottage fries on the side, but they do other good things there. Pizza, Raza, love Raza pizza. It's in Jersey City. I never thought I'd ever schlep all the way to Jersey City, but my friend lives in Jersey City. and no, no, you have to have this pizza. I went and I've eaten pizza all over the world. I've eaten pizza in Italy. There's something about Dan's crust that is crisp, just the right amount of char, soft and pillowy. Somehow it's buttery, but there's no butter in it. And then when I watched him make it, I'm like, oh, don't you need more sauce? Don't you need more corn charlie or a little bit more onions? No, less is more. And the minimalist amount of toppings that he puts on melds so harmoniously together. You cannot put a tablespoon more sauce. It's just perfect. And then you eat one piece and you have the other pie. Like if I go with three people, we end up ordering five pies because you need to have variety and to keep your taste buds kind of excited. Um, so that's for pizza. What else do I feel eat? I love Claude. My new favorites for Asian is Jeju Noodle Bar, which I'm trying to get into on Saturday. And Bangkok Supper Club, I thought was really phenomenal. So, oh, and then Radio Bakery that I shot a few reels with. Like, I honestly didn't know them at all. I saw them on Instagram, like obsessed about the triple chocolate croissant. I went by myself, refrained from ordering one of everything. I just got two things and then emailed the owner, Kelly. I was like, hi, can I shoot some reels? Thank you so much. Shot four reels and then have been editing them. But I dream about her focaccia because she takes focaccia and then does breakfast sandwiches with it. And then she does lunch sandwiches with it. And the one that has lox, cream cheese, pickled onion and dill... I watched one of her cooks like obsess over making sure that cream cheese was even from edge to edge and then just like shingling every piece of salmon and then the right amount of onion and the sprinkling of dill. And I took a bite of that and was like, so perfect. 
so simple, so perfect. And I think about that every day, but it's so far away that I got to get on the G train. I'm like, okay, is it a focaccia? No, 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 we're going to wait. But I love Radio Bakery. It's so good. And then Frenchette. Oh my God, Frenchette. It's my favorite. Yeah, it's French food, of course, but I love eating at the bar. Like, I'll also go by myself and eat lunch because I just love sitting at the bar. It's very casual and everything on the menu is great. And Michelle Palazzo, who's the pastry chef, is brilliant. I want all of her desserts because they're just the right balance of sweet, but the textures, the combinations, the seasonality of things, like I think she's the best pastry chef here. So that's where we would go eat over the course of like three days. Oh my God. I was like, please don't stop. <laughs> this is just, it's like music to my ears. So like, okay, before we go, I just got to comment on something. I think if you just did that on TikTok. Yes. Dude, my I God. was about to say the same thing. You don't have to spend any time shooting thing. food. If you just basically just talked about your favorite places in the world to eat and with your background, your story, like I think you would do so well. I agree. Yeah. yeah. I agree. I should be one of those TikToks where like I'm in the corner and there's like a background slideshow of all the food. I'm just describing it. Not even just literally just if you just talk to the camera, that's yeah. enough because you're implanting images in people's minds you're building just your by own talking brand too. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I literally think if you can just basically just describe a restaurant and you have so many different places that you can pull from. And so you have so much content and you don't have to spend too much time on it because you literally just did maybe like 10 of them right now. Yeah. Right? Off the top of your head. Yeah. Off the top of your head. Right. But the rub is because we talk about this, the TikTok is the top of your funnel. So yeah. it's actually then how do you actually monetize? Right. Yeah. And then this will build you the viewership. Yeah. Because right? you're doing a thing that nobody else can do, which is you're basically exactly. planting images in my mind and making me salivate and wanting to go to the place. Even I'm not even that into food. Right. But I want to go to the burger place that Raza is now in my mind. And I don't even really care about pizza. Right. And I think that skill and that ability is amazing that not a lot of people have, but also your background and your story about you traveling the world to basically like do this for Food Network gives you credibility that nobody else has. And that's your brand right. and that's your competitive edge. Yeah. I mean, when people say, I've been trying to sell a cookbook, right? Why won't you let me write a cookbook? I've been collecting and reading cookbooks forever. And they're like, well, what's your hook? It's like, oh my God, here we go with the hook again. And it's like, I never wanted to do things that everyone else is doing. Because it's like, oh, everyone else is doing, they're doing it all great. But the thing that does make me different is that we can all go to Raza and do a whole restaurant review. But I find that a lot of influencers, when they go, it's, we ordered this, we ordered this, and then we got this. And they kind of pick the dishes that everyone else is talking about. It's almost like bragging rights. I got that dish too. But what a lot of people don't do, which is what Food Network really trained me well to do, was describe food. Like, you can't just say, hmm, that was yummy. Ask me why. What's the texture? What's the flavor? What is the color? I mean, like, I remember interviewing Alex Ornishelli once, and she was describing how prosciutto was sliced so thin. She goes, it's so thin, like lingerie. And that just stayed in my mind forever. So I think what makes me very different is that, yeah, I've spent two decades training other people how do you describe food? I sit across from the interview chair. I'm like, okay, we're going to be talking about this restaurant. And so we would write the whole script. Then we sent them to go eat, let's say, the burger at Red Tavern. So they eat it and they have their own opinions about it, but they didn't see how it was made. So I provide that dialogue for them. And I say, okay, so the first thing you do is they take this burger. It's this kind of meat, this percentage of fat. This is how thick the patty was. And then they recite it back to me. So then they say it in their own voice, in their own words. And they do this with the patty. And that's how we trained all these hosts to be very articulate and descriptive. So that way you could almost taste it and hear it and feel it 
even though we're only giving you the visuals, it's the words that bring the food to life. So thank you for acknowledging the ability to describe food in a very descriptive, visceral way. I can't even sit still right now because I see it for you. I literally see it for you because you don't need to have the background. You don't need anything. All you need to do is talk like you're my friend. You're just describing a restaurant your favorite place, right? And over time, I'll get to trust you. It's the top of funnel. And the basically, the bigger the audience that you have, the more that you can go around and basically sell a cookbook and say, hey, to the publisher, yeah, 100%. I have this audience. And then you just right. basically collect their emails. And then I have an email list. And you just basically send, when you're ready for the cookbook, you just send an email to direct to consumer. I see it already. Or like the restaurant yeah. guide, like, oh my God, it's what you described. Is I so already unique. follow people on TikTok that do that, right? It's a unique ability and skill. Right. Yeah. It's basically innate for you, Irene. Yeah. You have the skill. You built it up. Like it's just like subconsciously, you're already just spitting poetry. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I think like, yeah, there's the algorithmic part of how do you game that, but the actual like content and what you're able to create is not something that like people would probably spend time to try to come up with formulaic ways to say what you say, but it comes naturally for you. And I think that resonates with people because you can tell, you can tell when people are describing something, you can, you can sense the passion. Yeah. And that really, yeah, trickles down. It's authentic. And TikTok is all about authenticity. And yeah, it's not just the skill, but it's also the story. Like, too, you have these two things yeah. that, right, Here's that basically why, no one right? else has. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, that was me speeding my way through like, oh, okay, let me give you a list of variety of where you can yeah. your. But it's like, if you say to me, okay, now just talk to me about going to Teresi. It's like, okay, I can break it down for you. The moment I yeah. walked in, what you start with, why you order that, why you want to save room for dessert, and then why you want to come back for round two and what you should do for that one. I don't want to go eat without you telling me what to do now. And you said you spent 10 years on this Paris list, right? Oh, yeah. And I'm going there next week. Yeah. You basically have been preparing for this moment for an entire decade. And you have so much content like that you can basically just pick and choose. Like you have so much content too. I'm so excited for you right now. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, some of the accounts I follow would be like, oh, you know, this restaurant's really good and you should try their croissant right. because it's really yummy. And then yeah. you should go and have the coffee. I don't know much about coffee, but it's very tasty. You know, it's just completely, you know, you would blow them out of the water. And it's, you don't need to produce anything. You don't have to spend too much time on it. It's literally just record yourself and then put it on TikTok because Instagram is a little bit different where it has to be like perfect. Whereas TikTok, it's all about authenticity. And as long as you're acting like a good friend that people can trust, then you have the content, you have the brand. You guys want to help me and just be like, all right, here are the things you're going to talk about. We're just yes. recording. Yes. And I'm like, great, let's just do it as a test experiment on TikTok because yeah. I have a TikTok account, but I did it only so no one else would take your handle, but I haven't put anything on it. Like it's empty. Yeah, we'll help you. Thanks, because <laughs> yeah. believe me, as a visual person, the last thing I would ever imagine is, wait, you want me to sit in front of a blank wall and just talk? Like, who's going to watch that? That's just going to be captions over my face. It's like, you need food porn. Like, I'm all about the images. Like, I don't, in my head, I'm describing the food. But when I'm with my dinner guests, like, oh, wait, hang on, I got to take a photo. I got to get the light right. I got to do this. And then I do spend the time writing captions when I do do a post to really dive deep into why that was so delicious. Whether or not people are reading the caption, maybe some followers are, but most people are not. They're just like, oh, whatever, whatever, whatever. But no, I never want to lose the ability to entice people with words because I need to convince you why it's delicious. My image is going to look like everyone else's images. Some images are going to be better than mine, but the way I describe it has to be, you can almost taste it 
And you can always be like, I need to go eat that now. Like, I can't stop thinking about it. And that's why I think is really powerful is to be able to convince someone like, I really need to go eat with her. Like, I'm really fun to eat with because we order everything. You should totally have that in mind when you're going to Paris this trip. And instead of taking static images, maybe take some videos, right? The food as it's being served, zoom in on it, whatever, right? And then just very light post editing. But again, the magic will be you and your voice and the things you say. Well, thanks. I feel a little bit more uplifted because a half hour ago, I was more like, I really don't know what I'm going to do with my life. (laughs) I'll send you some comps for like what I'm thinking in terms of like other people in different industries doing similar what I'm thinking. But I'm happy to share the Paris list with you if you want to read it. Or yes, I can like, read it to you. I'll just record a video of me reading. Please. That's all good. Oh, yeah, even, even better. Even <laughs> yeah. I mean, better. Wait, hang on. Hang on. I mean, unless you need to go, which I realize like I'm keeping you guys. But hang on. I'm going to read you the very beginning nope. of what I wrote. So, wait. Where's the opening paragraph? Sent. Let's see. Paris eats. Actually, as you're looking that up, Irene, I was going to say yeah. I, something I just remembered. I follow a bunch of random travel accounts on TikTok. Yeah. And one of them was like, it's like this gay couple that went to Kyoto and then I think they were yeah a few days in Tokyo. But he flashed like this very just kind of pretty formatted Excel sheet of like his schedule. And then I was just curious, I was looking through the comments. People were like, oh, can you share that with us? And he's like, yeah, sure. You know, here's a link or a link in my profile. So I clicked through and it was actually like a payment form. I was like, oh, I've gotten so much requests for $15. You can have my itinerary. And just from like the static image that he took a screenshot of, it wasn't like it was filled out with extreme description. It was essentially just like a very bare minimum itinerary of what he did. So there's many ways you can monetize down the road, I think. But yeah, I think there's a lot of possibilities there. I mean, yeah, every time I send, sometimes people are like, oh, can you send me a list? Because a friend of a friend is going. I'm like, no. She's like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's like I worked really hard <laughs> on that list. And if you're telling me your yeah. friend is just going there for two days... <laughs> You might as well tell me that person's a vegan at the same time. Like, no. (laughs) (laughs) Only very few people get this list because I really worked my ass on it. Because, yeah, you're going to tell me it's too wordy. So when I wrote up this list, I felt like I needed an introduction paragraph to justify why they should trust my list. So here, I'm going to try to read it without my glasses. The first restaurant I went to in Paris was McDonald's. It was a 24-hour pit stop during a two-and-a-half-week TWA bus tour across Europe with my mother. 17, we were celebrating my high school graduation. Years later, I returned with my boyfriend with reservations for Alain Ducasse. But we both got food poisoning from eating way too much raw milk cheese and called the restaurant a few hours before dinner to cancel. Third time's a charm, right? Food Network sent me to produce a field piece with food writer Patricia Wells. She took our camera to her favorite cheese shop, bistro, wine bar, and outdoor market. If you gently press the skin right below your eye, that's how you tell that cheese is right, like a best friend. Over the next two decades, Paris became my favorite food city. I've returned well over a dozen times with friends, sometimes family, every once in a while alone. Paris is my happy place. So then I go into a whole thing about why you should go to Mocha Nuts, Septime, Clamato, Septime Wine Bar, La Crown Bar, Virchou. And then I go into a description of who created it, why it's good, and then here are the dishes you need to order. So that's my Paris list. And then Copenhagen is wow. like intense. That's amazing. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Help me figure it out. That'd be great. I think you can tell how excited all of us are and blown away. I would love to. I would love to too. Okay. I have. Yeah, no, it'd be so yeah. fun. So another food question. Thanksgiving just passed. If we were going to make Thanksgiving potluck, but out of 
specific restaurant dishes. So an example is Court Street Grocers has this amazing turkey club where they confit yes. the dark meat with, yeah, with, okay, you already know. Yes. And then oh, yeah. Fun Fun Donuts has this sweet potato pie donut that is, okay, amazing. I'm not going to try and describe food while you're on this call. <laughs> and then what other dishes would you add to that Thanksgiving potluck? Okay. So this actually happened this Thanksgiving. I had a party on Thanksgiving Eve. I had Thanksgiving dinner. And then I ordered a turkey porchetta from Missy. And she has a delivery service called MP Deliveries or Missy Pasta. And I said to myself, this turkey porchetta is the reward to me for cooking two big meals on Thanksgiving week. So I ordered it, it delivered, and it is like a porchetta in that porchetta is a pork belly that they season, they roll up into a lot of slow roasted, and ideally the skin is all crispy. What she does only during Thanksgiving is she uses turkey. I know there's dark meat, I don't know if there's white meat, but she seasons it. I know there's fennel pollen, there's rosemary, there might be some like chili flake in there, rolls it up. I don't know how she cooked it. I want to say sous vide because it's cooked perfectly and then probably finished in the oven. This arrives into my refrigerator. There's no room in my fridge. It goes into the crisper drawer. And I don't cut into it until a week after Thanksgiving because I'm like, oh yeah, there's, there's that. So yesterday, I cut a slice or two, maybe three of it. And I took, it came with a jar of jus, like the, the turkey juices that go with it. So I heated up the juice. I didn't want to overcook this turkey because it had already been cooked. Idea is to reheat it and not kill it. So in my saute pan, I put the broth. And once that came to a boil, I put the two slices of cold porchetta in it, covered the pan. And then over very, very low heat, I just let the broth bring the turkey back to life, put the moisture back into every little nugget of meat. And then I sat down, I had some mashed potatoes to go with, and I sauteed some greens and I took a bite. I kid you not, I got very angry. People was like, God, Damn it, this is better than the turkey that I made. And I had slaved two days on this turkey. It was a 17-pound <laughs> heritage bird from D'Artagnan. I brined it at 1 a.m. after my big party was done and all the guests had left. I started brining the bird, put that big thing in my fridge. The next day, I took it out, rinsed it, patted it dry. I let it come to room temperature for two hours. And then I did the Martha Stewart technique, which is you take a bottle of white wine, three sticks of butter, heat that up, and then you drop a cheesecloth in there. You wring it out gently because you don't want to get rid of all the liquid, but you don't want it stopping wet. You then cover the entire turkey with softened butter. So a whole stick of butter, my two hands, massage it into all the skin, every under the arms, underneath the wings. And then you drain this like soaked cheesecloth over it. You tuck it in like you're tucking it to go to sleep. And then you put a thermometer in and you put it at 450 for 30 minutes. You take it out. You then baste it every 30 minutes. Now 350 degrees for another two and a half hours. I baby this turkey for hours. And then you peel off the cheesecloth, making sure you don't tear any of the skin until it's like this golden tan. But you want it to be mahogany. And so it's got to go back in the oven for another hour. More basting. It came out. I fucking pecan ducked that turkey. It was so crispy, so golden, so juicy. Made this delicious gravy. And they use like there's a quart container of gravy from last year in my freezer. So that's the magic trick is taking last year's gravy with some of the pork juice that I did the day before. Plus all the turkey juices from tonight. Everyone at the table was like, oh my God, this turkey is so good. It's so moist, so flavorful. Their pockets are fat and skin so crispy. I was so proud of myself. Best turkey I've made. 
and I take one bite of week old turkey porchetta and I was just Missy one. I waved the white flag. So that's what I would bring to a potluck is a Missy turkey porchetta. And every guest would be like, I'm never going to make a bird ever again. You'd be saving the lives of so many birds. You just want this turkey porchetta. Oh my God. Everyone needs to hire you. Okay. <laughs> Storytelling magic. And then I would throw in some Parker House rolls from Frenchette. I would get the babka, harvest babka from Bread's Bakery. What else would I get? Those are the things I would start with. Amazing. I'm so hungry now. <laughs> it's so late here. <laughs> so you joined Food Network kind of in the middle of its growth to its heyday, I believe around 1999. What was the culture like then? And how was it being an Asian American woman in media? I have to admit that while growing up in Brooklyn and going to school in Brooklyn, there weren't many Asians at all. And so pretty quickly, you stand out, you feel different, and then you try to be like everybody else so that way you're not an outcast. I would have certain racial slurs come at me and you kind of feel like, oh, I guess that's just part of it. You know, that's what happens when you're the only Asian person in the school. And when I went to NYU, I started seeing other diversities and all of a sudden, like, okay. And by the time I started working, to be honest with you, I was so into my work that I didn't really look up to pay attention. I guess at some point, it was more about who am I working with? Who are you? What's your background? Are you nice to me? Or are you like really mean? And less about, are you part of my community? Are you not part of my community? Are you giving me an opportunity because you feel that you need to? In my entire career, I never felt like anyone hired me because I checked off a certain box. I really felt like people recognized my work, my work ethic, which was really strong, my way of treating people and being really respectful, especially to people who were my bosses or my supervisors. I'm also a very kind person. I treat everyone with tremendous kindness. So for someone to be mean to me or to not treat me well, that feels icky. And I've learned as I've gotten older that I don't really want to be in that situation ever again. I don't like being part of a group where it's like the cool kids call. If anything, that annoys me more than being, let's say, pigeonholed because of what my background might be. Yeah, when I was at Food Network, I don't think there were many other Asians who were staff, maybe a handful, but not a lot. But I think people collaborated with me, chatted with me because of what I brought to the table for my work. Yeah, I mean, it, I think I applaud a lot of industries now for being much more proactive about having a more diverse community. It's about time. Everyone deserves a chance to thrive and prove themselves. And if they fail, they need to be called on and had a conversation so that they can grow too. But I know it happens, I'm not saying it doesn't. But for me, I've never felt that my background hurt me, but I also don't feel it helps me necessarily. When it came to creating food content about Asian food, yes, there was a definite, we need to appeal to an American palate. And at the time, an American palate was more American food. Italian was almost considered American food. Italian-American food was considered American food. But we didn't really do a lot of Chinese cooking. We didn't do Japanese. We didn't do Vietnamese or Thai or Indian. Because I think the fear was, oh, we're doing everyday cooking with supermarket ingredient. Unless it's in the international aisle, people can't make it. So it was a little discouraging that 
there were definitely cuisines or dishes or ingredients that were like, that's not what our audience wants. And it's not our job to necessarily teach them that or give them that option because it's a network that wants to make their audience happy and have the ratings come in. You look at today and the food space, and I am blown away by how much Asian cuisine is now celebrated. Like Korean food is on the map, but not just, oh, the typical Korean barbecue. Like you have all of these chefs who are like, I might be Korean, but I've also been training my pound with other cuisines. I've traveled the world. I've met other people. So I am now bringing their flavors and interpretations into my cuisine. So I love the fact that people are not all about soy sauce anymore. It's like, okay, sriracha had a moment too, but now it's about chili crisp. But now we're doing kimchi and we're doing like fermented black beans. I love that our pantry reflects our country. And I think that took a long time. We still have a long way to go. And I would love to be more a part of it. But during most of my career, it wasn't necessarily about Asian food. Right now, it's definitely emerging. I think it's amazing. And I'd like to that, but I think it can't be forced. Like, oh, you're Chinese. You need to do Chinese food. Okay, I grew up in a Chinese kitchen, but I spent most of my life cooking Italian food. But at the same time, I can't go out there and say, I'm an authority in Italian food. Like, I love Italian food, but, you know, I'm still a student of many cuisines. I, I would never say I'm an expert in any cuisine. I'm always learning from people. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you... St- like had like a front row seat to see the world change. Because when I was growing up, the cuisine just only had one perspective. But like, as I went through college and with Roy Choi and the, the taco truck, the taco truck, and with Momofuku and all these different like celebrity chefs, you're starting to see Asian food become accepted. You go to K-Town now, and it's not just Asian people, Koreans anymore. You can go to Ding Tai Fung and you're seeing why people eat your food, right? And so it's very interesting to see the world change in front of your eyes. You've written a little bit about how you were hiding your Chinese values. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Now, Chinese values, like I grew up in a family where we just really didn't talk. The dinner table, as much as I love that we were surrounded, the TV was always playing. And when we had dinner, it was Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. That was what our dinner conversation was every single night with my parents and my brother. We never talked about school. We never talked about friendships. We definitely didn't talk about relationships. And that, so you then start to build a community of friendships. And so even though I was raised with very, very strict parents who were all about getting excellent grades in school, getting a job, being successful, being financially stable, in my parents, it would have been ideal for me to be married and have children. They instilled very disciplined, hardworking ethic where you don't just dial it in ever. You really work hard. And I think the creative streak in me is, okay, I can do something, but how do I do it better than everybody else? You're never going to be the best. That's an illusion. But you want to stand out. And so when I cook something, when I throw parties, you've got to be spectacular. In a way, my life, I'm trying to create a TV production. In TV world, everything's extreme. The dinner parties are extreme. The parties are extreme. The guests are extreme. The food we make is extreme. And so in my life, it's like, how do I make this cookie party extreme? We're going to have a cookie swap and I'm going to do three giant trays of lasagna because it's not enough that we're having cookies. I got to make lasagna that takes me three days to put together. I'm extreme in that sense and trying to be successful and stand out. And maybe because I didn't stand out as a kid, I was always trying to hide because I was so different that 
I'm trying to find ways to express myself, to be accepted. And it's still hard. It doesn't matter how successful I have been. It doesn't matter how nice I am or how great my food is. If I don't fit someone's algorithm, it don't matter. And I'd like to say that it's enough that it makes me happy. And yeah, I go to bed every night being very happy with my life and very content. But you're still trying to be surrounded by a community of people and you want to be embraced by everybody. So I don't know. I think it's always a struggle to try to in. Doesn't matter how far I've come in life, I still feel like I'm trying to in, especially now that my industry is changing. Like, oh gosh, I thought I fit in and now all of a sudden I don't. So I got to fit in again. And now, whereas before I was like trying to not celebrate my background because no one else wanted to acknowledge it, I'm trying to find ways to understand my background a little bit more and to meet other folks in the Asian community and learn how their upbringing is different because we think everyone's different. You know, I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And I think if you grew up and you're Asian in 2000 or less, then you're so different. We all have a story. We all have a journey. And but at the same time, we all have the same emotions. We're different, but we're also not very different. I think one of the things that how the world has changed, I think that's very optimistic is that I think because we can kind of be our own brands now, I think you don't have to fit in anymore. And I think you can kind of sit in your authenticity and that's what people resonate with. At least looking at you with your background and your experience and all the things that you've built with your life, there's definitely something very compelling about you where you can create your own authentic brand and you don't have to fit in anymore. Yeah. I think I'm still struggling with that, right? Because I've spent my whole life trying to please others in order to get a job, succeed at a job, get a raise, get another show. You're always striving to make someone happy and to get more out of it. And we live in a society where it is about authenticity and being yourself. Okay, I can be myself, but here's where it gets hard. If I'm myself, but an algorithm doesn't pick me, then all of a sudden my ego shut down again. So it's like, I want to be seen. I'm trying to show the world my authentic self. But if there's no platform for me and no audience to captivate and help elevate that and support and help it grow, then what do I do with that? That's the hard struggle is that social media tells you, be you thrive in you. Don't always be your authentic self and things will come. Yeah. But it also has to be people who do want that. Like I can sit here making YouTube videos all day long, just do everything that I fully believe in. But if that doesn't somehow come in return to help me sustain a lifestyle, then okay, I've got to figure out what to do with my job to make money because we all need a job in order to live. Yeah. So Irene, If people wanted to learn more about you and look at and watch your amazing reels, where do they find you? Right now, it's pretty much Instagram. That's where I am every day live and present. So it's easy to comment, send me a DM, reach out to me. And also, I think my production company is there as a link. So you could always like go through that. Yeah, that's pretty much where I am other than I give you my phone number, my email address, or I invite you to dinner. (laughs) What is your Instagram (laughs) handle? My Instagram handle Amazing. is Irene Wong with an I at the end. So it's Irene Wongby. And then what's your website? It is IWProductions.tv. All right. Irene, you have this incredible gift and hopefully more people can watch it. Thank you so much for your time and really appreciate you sharing with us. 
Oh, it was such a pleasure to meet you all. I am so grateful that you showed an interest, that you wanted to chat with me for a couple of hours on a Wednesday night in the middle of a holiday season. So thank you. And I hope that when we are together in the same city, whether it's New York, LA, or Paris, that we have several meals together. Because I promise you, you will be well fed. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Amazing. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening until the end. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It'll help more people like you find us. You can find more about us on wild.show, WLD.SHOW. Please subscribe to our newsletter or DM us on Twitter. We'd love to get to know you. 